It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode 243 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? Busy, busy, busy. Awards, awards, awards. January TV, 17 different TV shows about different kinds of detectives. Everything's just so darn busy, Leslie, but that's okay because it's better than the alternative. That's right. I feel like we spent last summer talking about the alternative, and it wasn't as fun as we had expected it to be. But uh, you do mention awards. You've got the Emmys coming up on Monday on Fox. We're going to have a big, supersized segment up fourth this week, previewing what to expect from the 75th annual primetime ceremony. But before we get into that, we're going to lead off where we usually do with headlines. Number one. Up first in headlines, The Last of Us Season 2 is coming into focus ahead of production starting this spring. Caitlin Deaver, Emmy-nominated beef actor Young Mazzino, and Rosaline's Isabella Merced have joined the cast as video game characters Abby, Jesse, and Dina, respectively. And the casting department at HBO is hella busy um, because continuing at HBO, production on the Thailand-set third season of The White Lotus begins next month. And new cast members include the great Carrie Coon. The very funny Leslie Bibb. I'm going to stop adding adjectives in front of people's names. Jason Isaacs, Michelle Monaghan, and Parker Posey, among others. They will be joining Natasha Rothwell, who will make sure that the series can't compete as an anthology anymore, and will continue to be a drama, even though it's comedy. Anyway, though, like The Last of Us, it is not expected to air until 2025. Do you like this cast, Dan? Oh, God. I, you put Carrie Coon in a cast. I am always happy. That is a good starting point. I think that Leslie Bibb has always been somewhat underrated. Jason Isaacs is always fantastic in things. Michelle Monaghan is is an actress who I don't think has ever been given the material she deserved since Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And the idea of her getting to play around with some Mike White dialogue, that seems like a lot of fun. And uh, honestly, who who says bad things about Parker Posey? Nobody on no. This podcast, I'm sure. So, yeah, and I'm I'm pumped for these new additions for for Last of Us. I mean, I love Caitlin Deaver, and I think Young Mazzino was one of the, the great parts of Beef, among other things. Absolutely, no. They, I mean, obviously, that is a show that has done terrific work with casting, and congratulations to Nick Offerman and Storm Reed, both of whom very deserving Emmy winners at the Creative Arts uh, ceremony for the first season of. Um, Last of Us. So yeah, no no question. That is a show that has done very well with its casting. Yeah. Elsewhere on the new series front, things are getting busy again. Tina Fey is returning to acting and will star in a reboot of the 1981 Alan Alda feature, The Four Seasons for Netflix. Faye co-creates the series alongside 30 Rock alums Lang Fisher and Tracy Wigfield. Who are both, if memory serves, TV's top five uh, veterans. You are correct, sir. So yay. Elsewhere, Peacock has gone straight to series on Laid based on the Australian format with Stephanie Hsu set to star in the comedy from Young Rock's Nanashka Khan. Over at Amazon, the streamer, which laid off hundreds of people across its Prime Video and Studio side this week, Amazon has handed out a series order to Criminal, a drama based on Ed Brubaker's comic of the same name. And at CBS, the network that's home to NCIS and NCIS Hawaii has gone straight to series on yet another offshoot of the franchise. This one, a prequel about a young version of Mark Harmon's Leroy Jethro with a former set to provide voiceover for the drama. Dan, lots of weird shit here. So basically young Sheldon, only NCIS. Yes. Yeah. Young Jethro, young Leroy, NCIS, colon, young Sheldon. Nope. Got that wrong. That seems 
strange, but I'm sure it will do fine. So why not? Whatever. (laughs) On the renewal front, Max is doubling down on Bookie and has renewed creator Chuck Lorre's gambling comedy for a second season. And despite several months of various bits and pieces of controversy involving uh, the writer's strike, the Drew Barrymore show has been renewed for a fifth syndicated season. Really excited about Bookie. I enjoyed uh, watching the full season of that one. Did you finish it, Dan? I did not, no. We'll add that to your uh, end of 2024 vision board. (laughs) Moving on elsewhere, season three of HBO's Big Little Lies is inching closer to becoming a reality after stars and exec producers Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon teased the return of the anthology. While no deals are in place, sources tell me the duo have an idea that they're excited about and plan to formally pitch HBO on revisiting the franchise. And So You Think You Can Dance judge Nigel Lithgow has left the Fox reality series following a lawsuit from former American Idol colleague Paula Abdul alleging he sexually assaulted her. There is no good way to transition from that to anything else, but that is not a good story. Number two. Up next, The Mandalorian is getting the feature film treatment. Lucasfilm this week announced that the next Star Wars movie will be titled The Mandalorian and Grogu, which the company said will film this year and be directed by The Mandalorian showrunner Jon Favreau. It's the studio's first Star Wars movie that will go into production since 2019's Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. What we don't know, however, is if the feature film is really season four of The Mandalorian. Sources tell me that all the scripts for season four have already been completed, which would make it track that this movie could actually begin production this year, because usually scripts for Star Wars don't come in overnight. But again, no one's commenting. So Dan, what do you think of this move? I don't know. It's They, they needed a Star Wars movie on their schedule. and And that's just kind of what it is is there was all of this talk of all of the Star Wars movies that had been announced over the years that either were slow in development or were put into turnaround entirely, and they were eyeing an extended period of time without a Star Wars movie, and this seemed like a reasonable way to do it. And presumably they know, and probably correctly, that if you put Baby Yoda in an ad campaign and do a Baby Yoda-driven trailer campaign, that people will pay big screen money to see baby Yoda, even if he's being called Grogu for the purposes of, you know, well, actually using his name. But um, yeah, it seemed to work as a TV show and it didn't and doesn't feel as if Disney Plus has had enough different successes to be turning one of its successes into a movie as opposed to a Disney Plus series. So I I both completely understand why they thought it was a necessary thing to do and how they could make money off of it, and also don't understand how it works in a bigger picture sense. So yeah, it works and it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, to your point, this is an expensive show made for a streamer that doesn't really make money. So if you're Disney... And you're going to spend $15 million an episode times eight episodes, so $120 million for a season of television. This could be a way that that Disney chief Bob Iger is actually looking for a better return on that investment because you've got a proven character, two, two proven characters here with Mandalorian and Grogu. Now you're going theatrical, expanding the reach, expanding how much you're going to get per per viewer because everyone's got to buy their own admission tickets rather than a family of, say, four sitting around the TV paying for one Disney Plus subscription that costs a fraction of the price of one movie ticket. So again, we are in an era of contraction, and we'll talk about that a lot more coming up next. But the idea that you're going to get more for the money that you're spending is honestly, it's a smart one. But what I'm really concerned, not concerned about, but what I'm curious about is if this is going to be the end of the road for The Mandalorian or if they're going to try and do another season, maybe the, maybe a different fourth season than what they had scripted. If the script for this is actually really season four and they're going to mesh it all into one big thing, I don't know. Because to me, seasons of The Mandalorian feel like a procedural. It's like the sisterhood of the traveling Jedi, right? Where it's like, you know, different, there's like 17 different modes of transportation in every single episode. And each episode feels like its own installment of its own little journey, right? Like, oh, this week he's got to go so-and-so, you know, got to go so-and-so and and look at all the weird people he comes in, in, you know, in contact with. But again, that's more of a, a financial move to me. 
So either way, if, if this makes any money at all, which it will because it's Star Wars and it's the Mandalorian and it's Grogu, that's going to be a win for Disney. And it, at some point, it's still going to come to Disney+. Plus. Exactly. And when you say $15 million an episode, that, of course, sounds like a lot. But when you say $120 million for a feature film in the Star Wars franchise, that sounds like absolutely nothing. So I'm kind of curious as to how they're going to work the budget on this and if they're actually going to be able to do this as a, I don't want to say low-budget Star, Star Wars film, but if they actually do this at a budget of $120 million or somewhere anywhere in that vicinity. That's just to make the episodes. What you're not counting financially is the cost of marketing and promoting. Oh, for sure, but but there's but there's no way that any of these standalone Star Wars movies are anything for the most part under 200 million a piece. Uh, and that's before you get to something like Solo where they shot the entire movie and then reshot the entire movie or shot two thirds of the movie and reshot the movie or whatever percentage it was and caused the budget to do what it did. If they could actually do a Mandalorian and Grogu movie that was not cheap, but was cost effective, then it would seem like it could totally be a cash cow. But then again, you just look at how the other various Disney Plus shows have been doing, and we've talked extensively about the number of failures that Disney Plus has had outside of Marvel and outside of Star Wars. So to take away one of the things that's a guaranteed success on a weekly airing basis from the streamer. It just, it feels like a risk, but I understand how just in terms of bringing in money to the company, it has high upside because you put Grogu on a poster and people will show up. Just, I wonder how they will distinguish to make people go, okay, this is the big screen version of Grogu, yay. I, we'll see. Absolutely. Number three. Up third, hi, my name's Leslie Goldberg, and I'm the Grim Reaper of television. This week alone, we've broken news of the cancellations of Julia, Our Flag Means Death, American Born Chinese, and Minx. And this just in, ABC is also ending The Good Doctor with its upcoming seventh season. So welcome to the world of peak contraction, Dan. Yeah, this, this has been a bleak week for a lot of shows, which very clearly weren't breakout sensations, but I would say in several of those cases had not breakout again, but had large and passionate fan bases. I saw a lot of annoy. I saw a lot of anger about our flag means death. I saw a lot of disappointment and annoyance about Julia. I have to say honestly that I didn't see nearly as much uh, disappointment about American born Chinese, which reflects probably to some degree on what its audience was, which is a disappointment to me. Saw some annoyance about Minx, and while I haven't seen a lot of annoyance about The Good Doctor, of, of these shows, it's the one that actually has the large, successful television visible fan base. You, you know how many people watch The Good Doctor. All these other shows, it's a complete and total mystery. So so yeah, what, what would you say we can learn from all of this, Leslie? Well, I think that if you've got a show that is considered niche, meaning it's not a big, broad concept that can travel globally, you're going to face an uphill battle in 2024 in this landscape. So Obviously, you know, our flag means death. They, they waited, uh, Max waited a little bit to be able to renew that show as they got more data. With Julia, they seem to, to be impressed with it right out of the gate because they renewed this for a second season the same week as the season one finale. So they didn't even wait to see completion data, et cetera, or how it performed after the full season was already up and available. So American Born Chinese, I think it's, you know, it, it further proves a point that we talked about. And I think last week or the week before when you're, you know, you mentioned how Disney plus is, is doing with things that are not Marvel or, or star Wars. And it's, the answer is not great. I mean, obviously they have some things that, that are, that are working, right. Goosebumps seem to work. Percy Jackson seems to be working uh, for whatever reason. They renewed the Santa clauses that's, I guess, seemed to work. But you, when you look at what didn't the Muppets mayhem, uh, reboots of Doogie Howser and, and National Treasure, Willow even, right? Uh, Big Shot, a comedy from David Ar David E. Kelly starring John Stamos, The Mighty Ducks, right? Like even even stuff that had, had a, a following like the Mysterious Benedict Society, which got bounced around from Hulu. But these are things that didn't work on a big platform like Disney+. And it's a family platform and those are mostly family shows. And what they're learning from Disney+, is that it's Star Wars and it's Marvel and it's 
all of their beloved big IP titles, but just because it was a hit 20 or 30 years ago doesn't mean that it's going to work with a TV spinoff. American-born Chinese, on one hand, I kind of understand why it didn't work, but I thought it was a really good show. And look, to me, they had beloved source material, not as uh, maybe as big as some of the IP titles you just mentioned. I, well, I mean, I don't want to say not maybe not as big, definitely not as big, but still the graphic novel that American Born Chinese is based on was acclaimed and beloved. You had in the case of, you know, Disney Plus had basically the follow up to Michelle Yeoh and Kiwe Kwan winning Oscars. It, like, like this was the, what are you doing next? We've got a show on Disney Plus and they had no ability to convey that to an audience. And I think that is a real miss on Disney's part. But the the thing that we haven't gotten to yet, and then that we might as well talk about here, is that I feel like a lot of these shows, obviously with, with The Good Doctor, it's a different thing. But with a lot of these shows, the fact that they weren't able to do a full promotional run because of the writers and actors' strikes caused a serious problem. The fact that Kiwai Kwan wasn't able to be on talk shows, that Michelle Yeoh wasn't able to be on talk shows going, look, we've cut this really, really fun Disney Plus show that simultaneously is this wonderful representational thing, this this show with a largely all-Asian cast with, you know, just this, this great message, fun special effects, fun action scenes. There's a freaking Monkey King. Why would people not want to watch that show? And I feel like people just had no awareness that the show existed at all along those same lines you put jake johnson out there for minx he's enchanting you know everyone loves talking to jake johnson and ophelia lovabond etc um about about minx and the fact that they couldn't make the talk show rounds hurts that show there were there were a lot of shows that were just unable to fully launch because the vehicles behind which they launched these shows were out of commission in the second half of 2023. And so these are kind of the victims of that. Whereas obviously Good Doctor is just sort of contraction. Right. Yeah. We can talk about broadcast in, in a minute, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think Minx out of all of these shows, I'm obviously biased because I loved seasons one and two of Minx. And I'm so bummed that we won't see more in this story. I was texting with the creator, Ellen Rappaport, to see if, you know, if, if she would at least tell me for a story what, she had planned for season three. That doesn't sound like it's going to happen, but she was obviously really frustrated and upset, but you know, that it's more than anything else. It's a shitty end to what one of what I thought was one of the most original concepts that we've seen on TV in a long time and hats off to stars for picking it up. Even if they, at the time Lionsgate produced the show stars is owned by Lionsgate. So it made sense to air it there, but more than anything, you know, Minx and even Julia deserved so much more than what they got here. And I'm sure, you know, look, I haven't gotten to Our Flag Means Death, but I know obviously there's a queer story at the center of it. It's not a good time to be a show with queer leading characters where that is a central part of the storyline. And I, it pains me to say that, obviously, this is my community that I'm talking about, but we still haven't heard what's going on with high school from Freebie. It's been more than a year. That's again, a show with queer leads. We saw what happened with A League of Their Own. And again, it goes back to how we started this segment, Dan, where if you're not a show that is big and broad and that can travel, you're going to face an uphill battle in this landscape, you know? And, and, and in terms of broadcast, it's interesting to me, Good Doctor is ending with it season seven. But when you look at all of the broadcast shows that are ending this year, Station 19 on ABC, Blue Bloods, Bob Hart's Abishola, SWAT, Young Sheldon on CBS, Superman and Lois on the CW, La Brea and Magnum PI on NBC. What's interesting here that of these only three of them are fully owned by their respective networks. So that means that a lot of these companies are saying, we want to own our full slates. We don't want to have to get into licensing fee disputes. We want to have control over the purse strings, whether it's one division paying the other within the same company, and you can do your creative accounting and math however you see fit within a large conglomerate versus having to pay with the good doctor. You're, it's a co-production between Disney and Sony. So there is a licensing fee to be paid to Sony. And the same with all of these other shows that are ending, especially you've got two Chuck Lorre shows in there. Those are fully owned by Warner Brothers. And that's CBS saying, we don't want to pay money to Warner Discovery. So it's interesting. And a lot of these are also veteran shows, which we know get more expensive as they go on, as caskets, raises, and everything else is built into these contracts per the per the guilds and everything else. But you know, looking at Blue Bloods, that's, that's a show that, that CBS fully owns, but 
the cast to agreed to a 25% pay cut in order to get to season 14. And that's a huge reduction, right? Bob Hart's Abishol, you heard Chuck Lorre on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about that and how everyone was bumped down from series regular to recurring, except for the guy, the people who play Bob and Abishola. And that's again, cost-saving mode. So when you look at the landscape, it's not a surprise to see aging shows that are more expensive, that Maybe treading a, a line that you can replace with a newer, lower cost show coming to an end. And in the streaming world, it feels as if this continues kind of the ongoing shift because I feel like we we thought for a number of years that when it was a subscriber driven business, it felt as if you could have these shows that were kind of niche shows with extremely popular and passionate rather passionate more than popular audiences that that would get people to subscribe that that was going to be the thing that was going to be gold to these places and in that case a show like our flag means death ought to have been gold that show's fan base is as passionate and vocal as you could ever want and some of them are presumably only subscribing to hbo max max whatever for that show some of them, maybe. But now at this point, there, there's much more of an attempt to go to a Netflix model where where it's just about what is the volume of people that you're getting in. And it's it's a lot closer to broadcast in that sense, where they have to be bigger, broader hits. And there isn't the same value to whatever brings in a small niche subscriber market. I'm, I am really still confused by Our Flag Means Death, because that is a show that, that for a long time was in the top 10 on Max, because Max has never given us data. I mean, not even on the level that Netflix has. We just don't know what that means. We we don't have a clue what being a success on that metric is. And apparently the answer is not enough to get a TV show renewed. And a lot of these shows needed kind of whatever that extra wave of visibility was that they couldn't get. I think Julia really probably needed an Emmy nomination in its first season for Sarah Lancashire. I, I think I think that was what that show needed to gain some momentum. I think probably Our Flag Means Death also needed a little bit more of that awards recognition, whatever, but also it does show whatever power Taika Waititi has, it's either becoming more limited or it's at least not limitless. Like you would have thought at some point in the past few years that people love Taika Waititi and being in that business enough to push that show along for a third or fourth season. And apparently the, the money just doesn't work or, yeah. you know, the value just doesn't work. Yeah. And speaking of, of Taika Waititi, Reservation Dogs, co-created by Watiti, wrapped its run last year. And What We Do in the Shadows is concluding later this year with its sixth season. So very interesting times to be and a yep. fan of his. Yep. His visibility on the small screen is not what it used to be or is increasingly not what it used to be. Who knows? Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Up fourth this week, television's biggest night is this weekend as the 75th annual Emmys finally arrive on Fox with Anthony Anderson set to host. After two nights of the Creative Arts winners, HBO Max leads all platforms with 22 wins, followed by Netflix with 16, FX with 10, Apple with 9, and Disney Plus with 8. On the programming side, HBO's The Last of Us leads the pack with eight, followed by Welcome to Wrexham with five, and a four-way tie for third place with The Bear, still a Michael J. Fox movie, Wednesday, and The White Lotus collecting four wins apiece. Joining us to break down what to expect from the primetime ceremony is THR's awards editor, the one and only Tyler Coates. Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's just start with the host. 
how hard of a job does Anthony Anderson have after what Joe Coy did at the revived Golden Globes? I mean, the bar is underground at this point. I feel like he just has to skip <laughs> over it. Uh, I think he'll do a fine job. Uh, you know, I think what I learned from Joe Coy and I think also last year from Jared Carmichael is that, you know, not every comedian's a good host. Like, and and hosting is a definitely a different vibe. And I've seen Anthony Anderson host before and... I feel like we're in good hands here. That's the thing. Uh, you know, Gerard Carmichael is not a seasoned award show host. I thought he did pretty decently given an entirely untenable situation last year. Sure, Basically, yeah. he, you know, his job was to go up there and apologize for the Hollywood Forum press and explain why he was there at all. Joe Coy had a less hard job and fell on his face. But if nothing else... Anthony Anderson is a very seasoned award show host. I am assuming that what we will get is a professional award show, which would actually seem like quite a relief, I guess. But it is, you know, it is a thankless job. I, I you know, I don't know. There aren't many people who want to do it, which is why, you know, they found Joe Coy at the last possible minute, it seems like, and gave him, you know, two days to write maybe four jokes. <laughs> I don't know how many he actually did himself, but yeah, yeah I mean, his, I think his writers that, under the bus during the telecast, which... Exactly. I'm sure they love that. Two minutes. Yeah, that was that was pretty brutal. We haven't actually heard from any of the writers on the show, have we? Like, I know that Joe Coy has done a little bit of talking about what happened, but no, none of the writers have actually come out and said, yeah, we, whatever. No, not that I know of. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, I imagine, you know, a Golden Globes monologue writer probably is not the most seasoned person in television writing and doesn't want to come out and say, hey, this really sucks and, and lose possible future gigs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't even know how you how you start to defend yourself in that situation. I think you just kind of let him pick up the pieces himself, which is what he's attempting to do. Well, uh, Tyler, as, as Leslie said, you are THR's esteemed awards editor. Give us a sense of the degree of chaos of your professional life at this moment with all of the January award shows that always happen in January, your Globes, your SAGs, the upcoming Oscars, etc., and then with the delayed Emmys being plunked down right in the middle of your schedule. Yeah, it's uh, really bizarre. Uh, I feel insane, for sure. Um, last week, as, as Leslie said, were the two Creative Arts Emmy ceremonies back-to-back -back on Saturday and Sunday which coincided with the Golden Globes on one night. So that was pretty wild. A lot of a lot of people in my space, the award space, were running all over town. Um, this weekend is also just as busy. We have um, the LA Film Critics Awards are Saturday night, Sunday night are Critics' Choice Awards, and then Monday, the Emmys right after that. And um, I think what's really interesting, and we can, we'll I'm sure we'll get into the ramifications of a delayed Emmy ceremony, but you know, the bear will probably win awards for its second season on Sunday at the creative choice awards. And then win for its first season on Monday night, because that's where we are in the, in the calendar, the Emmys are going to be celebrating some shows that ended a very, very long time ago. And it's going to be very strange. Well, let's talk a bit about that. Cause my kind of perspective is that this is quite honestly a, a disaster for the Emmys and that they just have to be kind of weathering this year. But like last weekend, as awful as the Golden Globes were, they gave awards to Succession, to Beef, and to The Bear. And it seems extraordinarily likely that the exact same group of people are going to be back on the stage eight days later getting Emmys. Does this feel like it's going to be a gigantic anticlimax to you? I mean, maybe, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, by the time you get to the Oscars, you know, we've had two months worth of, of award shows in which most of the same people keep getting awards. And maybe that kind of plays a role in like Oscar voting in the sense that like, okay, do we want to see the same speech from the same person again? Or do we want to see someone else? Uh, with TV, it's interesting because, you know, Succession is done. So there's nothing coming out of that. Beef is a limited series, probably not going to have a second season. The Bear, again, as I said, it will be winning awards for its first season, which aired in 2022. And then, you know, but on the night before, the second season will be probably picking up awards. It's it's a very weird time. Um, and, you know, again, like we'll see the same Succession people 
get the same awards. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, like, how how they're even going to vary their acceptance speeches. Or was this point we're just going to hear a bunch of names being called out in a list? I mean, what else can you say? It's the proximity, though, that really perplexes me on this, because as you say, the movie the movie calendar does work so that by the time the Oscars roll around, whoever has already gotten the exact same 10 awards, but they aren't all televised in consecutive weeks. It's the fact that nine plus million people watched the Globes last week for some reason uh, and, and then they're going to tune in for the Emmys. Maybe kind of. That's the part that gets to me is that is that there actually is a TV audience that in consecutive weeks is going to watch Sarah Snook be um, surprised to win awards and uh, and to wish that one of her more glib male co-stars was up speaking for her. Like, I just kind of wish that they would arrange the run of show at least. So the things were in different orders. But yeah, have we heard anything at all about what the telecast is going to include other than Anthony Anderson doing better than Joe Coy? Uh, No, not really. I mean, you know, the Emmys, the Emmys are the Emmys. Like, I mean, they exist. I don't know. It's funny to me. Every year we have the same debate about the Oscars. Like, who watches it? Who is it for? You know, they're always giving the awards to movies no one watches and like that's why no one cares and no one tunes in but like the emmys ratings are not like off the charts in comparison it's still an award show where we're celebrating really famous people and they're going to give sincere speeches it's not like the wild and crazy golden globes so what can you do with the emmys to make it fun and fresh i don't know there's we hand out we not i but they hand out like you know countless awards so much that they have three ceremonies so you know i don't know what you can do other than bring in some funny bits you know in between the presentations so but like you know i haven't seen anything super interesting from anthony anderson about what he has up his sleeve if anything but it is the 75th annual emmys so maybe that's a watermark i guess they can celebrate you know 75 years of this so let's get into some of the individual categories uh leslie do you want to do you want to be do do you want to be reading us some nominees (laughs) (laughs) sure i can absolutely do that so let's start with the biggest category best drama series the nominations are andor better call Saul, the crown house of the dragon the last of us succession the white lotus and yellow jackets so tyler i mean this is successions to to take home for its final season right i mean as yeah i mean there's there's no I don't see any world in which Succession doesn't get it. Um, you know, Andor, people love it. It's critically acclaimed, especially for one of the Star Wars shows. Um, I mean, Better Call Saul would probably be the one that people feel like is the most deserving after Succession, especially since it's been nominated for, I forget the number, but over 50 Emmys and hasn't won a single one. Um, you know, I think in addition to Andor, we have these like, very genre heavy House of the Dragon, The Last of Us, and I would even say Yellow Jackets. And then The White Lotus jumped from limited series last year. Now it's competing as a drama. And then The Crown is, you know, was a weak season. I was actually kind of surprised it got nominated. With that in mind, I mean, you can make all the arguments you want, but like Succession's going to get it. And we all know that. I legitimately no longer have a clue what season of The Crown is even being nominated here. I not even not even a clue. I think this is season five, right? Yeah. So this is this will be the first season starring Imelda Stanton, Dominic West, Elizabeth Debicki. Yeah. Another weird timing where The Crown season came out in 2022. Um, We already have the final season is out and done, which launched in late 2023 outside of the eligibility calendar for this current Emmy season. But during the voting window. Yes, exactly. Which also makes me wonder if that will color anything with the Crown's nomination for its penultimate season. Yeah, I'm I'm curious because I I feel like it was, I think this last season was received a lot better than the fifth season, um, but still kind of a muted response. Um, Oh, do you? I mean, as as someone who said fairly negative things about the first half of the the final season, I'm not sure I felt that way. I thought the fifth season at least had the good... I just I can't keep track of what we're even honoring here. And it's so, it's been it's been so long since Better Call Saul aired an episode. So at least I know what we're honoring there. It was the second half of the final season. Yeah. But trying to distinguish in my mind between when what the first season of The Bear was notable for and what the second season of The Bear was notable for and and whatever the little differences might be like the biggest difference is that Iowa Debery is up for supporting for the Emmys and she 
very correctly put herself in lead for all subsequent awards. So that's what she won the other day for the Golden Globes. But yeah, which was for season two. So I think you can make that argument that she may jump into the lead category for next year, next summer. And she'll deserve to. And that will answer all of the questions that that people who don't pay attention to the minutia have about stuff like why uh, Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't nominated for for the bear. It's because she was for a season that will be up next year, except right. it's the season. The Golden Globes already honored. There has to be a way to do this better than they're doing it. And I don't know what it is. I think the easiest way, Dan, is just to the Golden Globes from your mind, right? Like, they don't matter. <laughs> they don't. But we've got SAG Awards coming up and season two of The Bear was nominated for SAG. So it's still weird and complicated. But if the SAG Awards are airing on Netflix, do we know with absolute certainty that the SAG Awards are actually going to exist? I, I'm i not completely convinced. Who's Yeah, who's going to watch them? I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's really interesting that, you know, the Emmys, the TV Academy really sticks to this, I would say, old fashioned idea that a TV season starts in, well, they consider it to start June 1st through May 31st, but following the old fashioned like September new releases and then everything's over by May. That doesn't Which exist is hilarious anymore, which because is why... that original, just apologies for the, to interrupt you, but what, what's so funny about that traditional calendar is that it was created to sell cars. Like that, the original TV <laughs> schedule of launching in September wow. was designed to sell cars. It has absolutely no bearing no on the like, You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, we now, and I'm sure Dan, you, you feel this as a, as a critic, I'm sure you are absolutely overwhelmed and you know, March through May, just reviewing new f- shows that all get launched usually on streamers to, you know, maximize the number of Emmys that they can get because it, 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 you know, it's sort of like releasing all the Oscar bait in December before the end of the year. Um, and so, you have cases like The Bear that will launch almost around the same time as Emmy campaigning is happening. So that's sort of interesting to me because they're doing their normal press tour and they're also just like fresh in the mind of the Emmy voters in the first place. I think that helped Ted Lasso definitely in its first season with its Emmy uh, campaign that season two came out pretty much in June, July when they were doing all that stuff. So it is it is. An interesting, the calendarization is really interesting, and I do think that there there are people who take advantage of that to their to their benefit. The logic to me of the some of the different staggered calendar. I mean, as as Leslie said, it is an entirely outmoded calendar, and it makes no sense except for in the tiny ways it does. If we pretend that the Golden Globes have to continue to still happen, and that they are they continue to be a thing that we have to continue to pretend are relevant. If nothing else, if you have the Emmys on the calendar they're in and in the fall, it allows for there to be kind of two different waves of shows that get their first recognition from these different award shows. So the Golden Globes get to give the first recognition to some assortment of things, and the Emmys get to give the first nod to other things. And it gives them kind of each a, a value, but I'm putting value in quotation marks. But but just for this year, because of the strikes and because of the delays of the Emmys, basically the Golden Globes got to have multiple consecutive years of being the first ones to honor anyone. And that just renders the Emmys irrelevant. It should have been that the Emmys got to have first dibs at honoring uh, what uh, The Last of Us, at honoring a couple of things that premiered between January and May, basically. But instead, it ends up being that the Golden Globes got to do everything and the Emmys get to go the week after the Golden Globes and against an NFL playoff game. It's just like I said, it's a, it's a disaster. Uh, Leslie, let's transition to some to some comedy Yes. Nominees, I think. So the nominees for best comedy series are Abbott Elementary, the final season of Barry, The Bear, Jury Duty, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, also the final season, Only Murders in the Building, the potential final season of Ted Lasso, and Rookie Wednesday. I mean, this one feels pretty wide open, especially c- considering how mixed, and I'm being polite here, people were about the season three of Ted Lasso. And I say mixed, but I'm not one of them. I thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i been saying for months now, we may see a drama take best comedy series <laughs> if, if Barry or the Bear win. Because, I mean, the Bear, to me, is a drama. I get why people, I get why FX is pushing it as a comedy, but it feels like the least funny comedy of the bunch. 
maybe next to Wednesday. But <laughs> Barry, which I do find very funny in a very dark way, really evolved heavily into the dramatic side and the dark side. So I feel like those are the two front runners here because, as Leslie said, Ted Lasso has sort of fallen out of favor um, with a lot of viewers. Um, but, you know, Abbott Elementary is still the one broadcast network you know, hanging in there. And I feel like season two was bigger and better. So maybe we could see, you know, ABC take an Emmy for once in a long time. Look, since a dark comedy succession is going to win for drama, it seems entirely reasonable to me that a uh, dramatic comedy or whatever is going to win for comedy. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't bother me so much. But looking at kind of the 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 schedule rhythms, Wednesday feels like it came out a, a hundred years ago. Uh, Abbott Elementary has been gone for so long that it feels like it's been gone forever. At least Only Murders in the Building feels semi-recent. I at least remember what the last season of that show was, and I think that's the season that this is up for. It's not. <laughs> or is it not? Oh, God. Not. Oh, no. This is, this is like The Bear and Better Call Saul. Only Murders, oh, is, <laughs> Only Murders premieres at seasons at the end of uh, summer. So, again, like, you know, they couldn't do a press tour, but the show was fresh on people's mind when they were voting. So that may have helped it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is the the bear and only murders are the most recent like on television, but they were for later seasons that are being honored this weekend. So it's, again, a weird, a weird timing issue. It's freaking baffling. <laughs> So moving on here, rather than going on uh, and going through all four of the main acting categories, why don't we have you guys each pick one category that you're really heavily invested in that you, or if there's like one specific nominee that could maybe break a record or accomplish a first, what are you really looking forward to uh, guys on, on the acting sides? I feel like those are kind of different questions. Look, I, I want, I want Bob Odenkirk to win because I want better call Saul to win an Emmy. This is to me a thing that is absurd that this even needs to be a thing we're discussing. But as Tyler said, we're into 50 plus nominations without a win for Better Call Saul. And Bob Odenkirk is not going to win. It's going to be one of the guys from Succession and it's probably going to be Kieran and Culkin. And that's entirely fine. He's great. I don't have any problems with that. But the thing that would make me happiest that will not happen is Bob Odenkirk winning. And it's not Rhea Seahorn? You're kidding. I'm shocked. Ray, genuinely, Ray, consistently, Ray. No, because look, whatever. I, look, she, the fact that she got her nomination and two consecutive years of her nominations was completely and totally. I don't want to say it was enough because whatever. It's I'm sure it's never enough. But if you look at the uh, outstanding supporting actors in a drama series category that Ray Seahorn is in, and there's it's, five it's people from the White power. Lotus in it. It is a powerhouse category, and it's a powerhouse category that, you know, like, Jennifer Coolidge is there, and that's just such a reminder of how White Lotus should be a comedy and how it should not be a drama. And and it's so ridiculous that it is categorized where it is. But no, look, if Racy Horn won, I would be extremely happy. Of course I would. But to me, Bob Odenkirk is obviously, it's better call Saul, and he's Saul, and... The show is going to end up going over its entire Emmy career, and so is he for this show, and that to me is just a sham. But okay, so what's what's yours, Tyler? If I could say I'm rooting for someone, I kind of want to say James Marston for Jury Duty. I loved Jury Duty a lot. I, you know, I'm I'm kind of a comedy nerd, so I appreciate all the improv and getting to see, you know, really people get to become breakout stars out of out of nothing. But you know. Being led by James Marston, who plays himself to such a heightened degree and a kind of curb your enthusiasm style. Um, and I just think that it would be an exciting... I mean, I was very excited to see it get a series nom, um, which I did predict, and I, I feel great that I got that right. You know, supporting actor in a drama series like supporting actress is full of just White Lotus and succession. And so how do you even pick from that i'm sort of curious to see who will take it wait which category did you just say supporting uh, actor supporting in, a actor in a drama in a, in a drama. drama okay yeah it's all white lotus and succession are the only nominated shows so i'm just curious how you you know how does that split the vote in a way um and then yeah i mean and and i'm curious to see if elizabeth Debicki, you know kind of continues her reign as it would she's been winning a lot of 
awards playing Diana. And if anyone could beat Jennifer Coolidge, who I feel like, you know, people just want to hand her awards to see what she's going to say into a microphone. So I feel like that she could be the one to do it. I think you landed there on the categories that are probably most interesting for the show. I think I think the supporting acting categories, especially because they're the categories that are not directly replicated by the Golden Globes because the Golden Globes do that weird ass everybody in a single pot yeah. kind of thing. But I'm I'm looking at the outstanding supporting actor in both drama and comedy and at least on the surface to me it doesn't seem like there there's well, you know, I guess Matthew McFadden looks like he's kind of the front runner and he won last time and whatever. I mean, let's just go through them really quick. Supporting actor in a drama, yeah. you got F. Murray Abraham up for The White Lotus, Nicholas Braun for Succession, Michael Imperioli for The White Lotus, Theo James for The White Lotus, Matthew McFadden for Succession, Alan Ruck for Succession, Will Sharp for The White Lotus, and Alexander Skarsgård for Succession. And that's act, supporting all, actor all in a drama. All comedies, incidentally, but whatever. <laughs> it's, it's whatever it is. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I think my vote, my vote would probably be for Alexander Skarsgård, but you know, if someone else there wins, those are all good people. But like that is a category that could be surprising. It also could just be Matthew McFadden again. And the comedy actor category, which is Anthony Kerrigan, Phil Dunster, Brett Goldstein, sorry, Emmy winner, Brett Goldstein, friend of the two-time five. Two-time Emmy Goldstein, winner, Brett Goldstein. Two-time uh, TV Stop podcast, Brett Goldstein. Um, <laughs> James Marsden, as you say, Evan Moss, Bacharach, Tyler James Williams, and and uh, and former TV Stop five guest, Henry Winkler. Yeah, I, I, I don't, really feel like I know who's going to win. So maybe James Marsden is the winner there because I think there's just a lot of affection for him. Henry Winkler. <laughs> yeah. Bust. So, okay. There. With apologies to Brett Goldstein. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Henry Winkler, I could see, you know, he's beloved. He's won this category before for this role. You know, I feel like that's a good bet. I think James Marsden, I think jury duty as a, as a whole to me just represents like I interviewed Cody Heller, the showrunner, during the strike, uh, she didn't break our G uh, WGA rules to do it. I should say that. But, <laughs> you know, I think what she really was excited about, you know, having this series nomination was that, you know, this is a show you can't make, you know, with AI. It's such an actor driven show. A lot of the actors were in the writer's room as well. Like, I think, you know, I think for actors, it is an important show because it shows like even the smallest roles can become so big and important and that's a perfect example of it i was sort of bummed that it didn't get any sag recognition however <laughs> and there's a thing where like i am not the biggest fan of jury duty this is well established i in fact didn't mm. like it but but like if i were going to recognize that show for anything it would be for its ensemble i think that is yeah. you know if you're going to find a way to recognize that show the ensemble is exactly where it deserves to be recognized but but they make weird choices in SAG. Yeah. I, I don't really. <laughs> I, it is sort of a shame there isn't an ensemble category at the Emmys, because I think that maybe that, you know, I, it makes more sense to honor the entire cast of the White Lotus than pick like five actors and five actresses to just place in these two categories, uh, since everyone is supporting and that show is so huge. Same thing with Succession. I mean, and Ted Lasso. I mean, there was a year where like it was almost every single actor from Ted Lasso was nominated except Phil Dunster. So I'm glad that he got one this this season. But yeah, I mean, that, you know, that that happens. We're, we're seeing a lot of as much, you know, we're in there as much TV as there is and there is probably too much. Um, the same shows keep clogging these supporting categories because their ensembles are so good and so big. Yeah, well, that'll probably change next year when you see Succession go away and potentially yes. Ted Lasso, too. And there will be no White Lotus, so maybe there'll be more variety. That's right, because season three of White Lotus isn't due until 2025. Same with The Last right. of Us. So, well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. The Emmys air Monday, January 15th, starting at 5 p.m. Pacific on Fox. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, the new Marvel series Echo arrives on Disney+. Plus. True Detective arrives without Nick Pizzolatto on HBO. Monsieur Spade on AMC. 
And the TED prequel series arrives on Peacock. Dan, what a mixed bag this week. It's eclectic, though it does have the sort of the heaviness on on detectives that I mentioned. So many detectives this month. Detectives everywhere. Uh, I love that Peacock is calling TED an event series, I think they're calling it, which is sort of a, it pushes the definition of event about as far as it can possibly uh, get. I, I did watch, I think, four episodes of TED and... Um, if I'm being generous, I'm going to say it made me laugh. It, it has things that made me laugh. It, it is very uneven. It is extraordinarily padded. It happens that the padded bits are often much more entertaining to me than the parts that are supposed to be the plot, which I think probably is a lot like the movies as well. Uh, the first movie I thought was fun but inconsistent, and then there was apparently a second movie. But, you know, it, it is definitely the sensibility of the movie. And so if you are a fan of the movies, you will probably laugh at this. I would also add that if you are a general fan of the Seth MacFarlane uh, school of, of humor, if you continue to watch American Dad, if you continue to watch Family Guy just chugs along, probably Ted will do for you roughly what you expect it to do. Uh, if, however, you only liked Ted because you like Mark Wahlberg and Mila Kunis, they're not here in their place. Uh, you have Parenthood star Max Burkholter, who seems like a somewhat odd choice as a Mark Wahlberg proxy, but whatever. A lot of people on this show doing Boston accents that are funny. Um, but then you also have favorite Seth MacFarlane voices, Scott Grimes and Alana Ubach uh, as, as the parents here. So live action. And then, of course, you have Seth MacFarlane voicing the the animated teddy bear. And it's kind of an origin story, not really an origin story for their friendship, because the origin continues to be in the past. But it's kind of a coming of age story for their friendship. And like, if you've ever wanted to know how Ted and Johnny first fell in love with the Flash Gordon movie, that's right there in either the pilot of the second episode. If you've never wanted to know those things, then you could probably do other things with your life. Uh, some of you know, look, a 50 minute pilot for this show is is so much too long. It does not feel in any way what a show like this should be doing. Subsequent episodes, though, are closer to 40 ish minutes, and that's okay. It it does happen that the subplots involving people who aren't talking CG bears feel very strained and and often make very little sense in the context of a TV show called Ted. It's also funny that uh, there's a, a new character played by Georgia Wiggum, who plays Johnny, the main character's cousin, who lives with the family. She's practically the star of the show, and and that is very much what, not what people are expecting, though uh, Georgia Wiggum is actually very likable and, and good here. Uh, but I chuckled. What I found I was chuckling most at was the long extended digressions that had nothing to do with the storytelling in the show that it's sort of watching Seth MacFarlane ramble as a talking teddy bear is as funny as it is but once again if you did not find the Ted movies funny there is no chance that you will find the Ted TV series funny but if you did find the Ted movies funny it's this is pretty much roughly that so so there you go uh that is that is Ted the series um on Peacock huzzah Let's continue with other things. Uh, Echo has already premiered. It is on both Disney Plus and Hulu, and it is, of course, a spinoff from Hawkeye. And it's it, it is an it's an odd show. It, it's I've got two shows in this segment, two shows this week where it feels to me like the shows didn't get as many episodes as they needed to tell the stories they were telling in the right way. And the fact that both of the two shows are female-driven parts of franchises in which the male-driven parts have more traditionally gotten more episodes is simply a fact. Whether or not you happen to think that is a sign of, of sexism or not, that is up to you to debate. But the Disney Plus Marvel shows have traditionally been six episodes or eight episodes or ten episodes, and Echo is five. And skipping ahead a little bit, True Detective, the previous seasons of True Detective have all been eight seasons, and eight episodes rather, and this season is six. So, you know, draw your own conclusions. Uh, Echo, it's interesting because, like, on a representational level, it's fascinating. The main character, played by Lockwood Cox, is a budding superhero, though she starts off 
kind of a villain because she's been working with Kingpin, but she's been doing that for reasons of being manipulated, etc. We know she's going to become a better person as things go along. And the character is deaf. She's indigenous, Choctaw in specific, and she's an amputee. And so all of these things could feel like kind of checking off diversity boxes, but they don't. They feel like very integral parts of the show and of the storytelling. There are several people on the writing writing staff who have reservation dogs on their credits, which is always a plus for me. And a lot of members of the cast are Reservation Dogs veterans, including Deborah Jacobs, who plays the cousin to the main character, but also Green. Uh, Zon McLaren plays the main character's father, but people will know these things from Hawkeye if they know. Uh, several people on various social media platforms asked me if they could watch this without watching Hawkeye. And the answer is yes, you probably can because most of what was important to how the Maya Lopez character existed in Hawkeye is covered in like the first 15 minutes, which uses a lot of clips from the original series, uh, etc. So you really don't need to catch up. Happened that I thought that Hawkeye was a, a really fun show. And uh, Haley Steinfeld, who guested on the podcast as an end of the year guest in one of our years, she was fantastic in it. So little, little disappointed on that. But anyway, so I thought when the show is doing character driven stuff, it's really great at times. It, it does a lot of things that are specific and different and that I thought were just really fun to see on a TV show that's airing as kind of a superhero show. But when you watch it as a superhero show, the fights are are okay. The special effects are rarely very good. Uh, the arc of the character towards her superhero identity, the key points are actually terrific. But a lot of the stuff that isn't, there that kind of is supposed to develop doesn't develop in a smooth way. So definitely the last two episodes to me felt like they could have been fleshed out into three episodes. In general, this felt like a show that could have been very easily eight episodes, and that probably was what it should have been. But I like Alakwa Cox. She's got a good intensity. I love the supporting cast. Debra Jacobs, not as good here as in Reservation Dogs, but still very likable. Tantu Cardinal is excellent. Graham Greene is excellent. Chasky Spencer, I'm happy to see him getting these opportunities. So it's kind of a mixed bag. If you go in expecting huge action scenes, and big old connections to Marvel mythology. Not so much that, though there's plenty of Kingpin here if you like Vincent D'Onofrio's growling interpretation of Kingpin. But I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff here, and it's best watched as a... Here I'm concentrating on the interesting stuff, not so much on being thrilled the whole time. So I, I did like Echo, but I think that there's a great show that it could have been, and it's it's not that. Uh, similarly, True Detective, which premieres on Sunday, I think it's I think it's good. I, I I'll even just go so far as to say it, and I don't think it feels like it's conspicuously missing those things in the way that Echo does. I think Echo, you watch it and it really feels kind of gutted in places. True Detective just feels like they're rushing, like they're trying to get through a lot of material in six episodes when they could have gone eight and just let everything breathe. And uh, the season, which is created by Isa Lopez, who some people will know uh, her Spanish language feature debut, Tigers Are Not Afraid, which is a really good low budget kind of horror movie set against the drug war in Mexico. She's really talented. She directed all six episodes, wrote or co-wrote most of the season, and it's set in northern Alaska. The series begins with a horrible crime at a research facility, a murder of, of six researchers on what is basically the last day of sunset, of sunrise, sun, day, last day of day. We're about to move into night country, which is the subtitle. <laughs> but so it's it's got one of those... This is a world in which there is no day stories, which we, we've seen in a lot of different forms. Insomnia kind of had the inversion of it. 30 Days of Night had basically this, but with vampires. There are spooky elements to this season. There are definitely suggestions that supernatural things can be afoot. And in that way, it's a lot like the first season. And there are actual direct nods to the first season of True Detective, which I think some people will be happy about. But it's still a completely standalone story. And it, it's basically focused on Jodie Foster and Callie Reese playing two cops trying to get to the bottom of the case and trying to fight back against the institutional whatever from the local mining concern, etc. Uh, 
This is another show with interesting indigenous representation, interesting coverages, coverage of the culture of a lot of the characters. Could have used more of it. Jodie Foster's just having a good time here. It's just a good role for her. She's likably unlikable would be how I would say it. Her character is a total train wreck and she hurts everyone she comes in contact with. She makes a mess of absolutely everything, but makes it a good part for her. Callie Reese, who is less of a trained actor, but has tremendous screen presence is is really good and then there are some there are some recognizable and interesting supporting people fiona shaw has a very underwritten part christopher eccleston has a very underwritten part john hawks has a somewhat less underwritten part but still underwritten all of these things two more episodes could have just given all of the supporting characters a little bit more time to shine what i will say is i found the ending to be strangely satisfying my initial reaction was that it was a little bit crazy or ridiculous then i gave it a couple seconds thought and i'm like yeah that that works and i think this is the first true detective season where i've gotten to the end and i've been like yeah that was actually satisfying and i think that'll help the show but i also think that in general it's it's a cleaner season the the first season is great up until the ending which let some people down second season is a nutty mess I think there are good things in it, but it's a total mess. Third season was Mahershala Ali acting, and that was all it was. There was the, the mystery is not even vaguely interesting. This season has a better mystery, and I think that will help people like it and find it more satisfying. Uh, and then last but not least, Monsieur Spade, or Monsieur Spade, because I like to pronounce it like Sade. No one on the show does. People pronounce it Spade and talk about how it's a dumb name, which totally not true. Anyway, uh, takes Detective Sam Spade, who some people will know from either Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon or from the seminal classic, still tremendous John Huston movie. God, such a good movie. I, I rewatched it when I was uh, rewatching, when I was watching Monsieur Spade. Maltese Falcon just holds the hell up. Like if you have doubts in your head for some strange reason about why Humphrey Bogart was awesome and why do you have those doubts? But anyway, if you do and you haven't seen Maltese Falcon, God, he's great. It's just amazing watching him operate in that role. Uh, so, but the, the premise here is that Sam Spade is basically in semi-retirement in Bozul, France, somewhere in the south of France. It's a town that's on the, the brink of a gigantic gorge. And it's also gorgeous. <laughs> anyway, sorry, whatever. That's a, that's a funny joke. <laughs> no, it's really not a funny joke. Anyway, it's, this is another show in which there, there's a, a massacre, this one at a convent, and our detective main characters have to get to the root of it. There's a lot of this this month. It is a detective-heavy, massacre-heavy month. So, But you have Clive Owen playing Sam Spade, and thankfully Clive Owen is not doing a Humphrey Bogart impression, but he's got a lot of witty dialogue, and the show is created by Scott Frank and Tom Fontana. That would be Queen's Gambit and Godless and Out of Sight scribe Scott Frank and Oz and homicide veteran Tom Fontana. That's about as powerhouse a group of writers and stars as you could have. The actual mystery and the various supporting characters in this all feel kind of half-baked to me. And the mystery can only be resolved by having a guest star in the finale come in and tell everyone they're stupid. It happens that I really enjoyed the guest star, and I enjoyed having them come in and tell everyone they were stupid. And so that was entertaining. I like Clive Owen here. A lot of supporting characters who felt like they should have been stars of a different story. So there's all this backdrop stuff about the uh, France-Algeria war, about collaboration and rebellion in World War II, a lot of that gets the short shrift, and that and that's a bit of a, a disappointment. This, to me, should have been a slam dunk. Instead, it's a decent, interesting mystery that could have been better, and it's not fair to compare it to the Maltese Falcon because the Maltese Falcon is fantastic. So to quickly recap, if you like Ted the movies... Ted the series will probably do for you roughly what you want it to do. Echo's good if you concentrate on the things that it does right. It's not a thrilling, action-packed superhero show, though, so you got to know that going in. True Detective, I think, will satisfy people who maybe tuned out recent seasons of True Detective for whatever reasons. Lots of people quit on True Detective. I think this will bring some people back. And Monsieur Spade... It's got things about it that work for me, and I really like Clive Owen as Sam Spade. I think that's a smart piece of casting. Whether the show itself works overall, maybe not quite so much, but only six episodes. So 
There you go. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias, where she is, as always, at Snoodit, S-N-O-O-D-I-T. And I'm, as always, at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That is TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.